Isaiah chapter 11. We're in our second week um, of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus. It means the arrival, the coming. And at Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of the promised Messiah, the arrival of the Christ child, God putting on flesh and becoming one of us. And this Advent season at New Branch, we're looking at four particular prophecies from the book of Isaiah that speak to and point to the arrival, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the first of these from Isaiah chapter 9. We read about it even this morning. We lighten the candle. For unto us a child is given, a son is born. And this morning we're going to look at another of these prophecies from the book of Isaiah pointing to the advent, the arrival of Christ from Isaiah chapter 11. As Tyler mentioned last week, Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. And when he gives us these prophecies of the advent of Messiah, it was meant to encourage faithfulness on the part of God's people in that day as they waited, as they waited for these promises to be fulfilled. And while God's people today, the church, the saints of today, we don't look forward to the advent of Christ. We look back to it. But we do look forward to his return. We look forward to his second advent. Just as God's people in Isaiah's day waited for his first arrival, so we today wait for his return. And the prophecies themselves that we looked at last week, this week, and the next couple of weeks, that the prophecies themselves have clues to that effect. That some of these prophecies were, in fact, fulfilled in Jesus' first arrival at Bethlehem when he lived his life and he performed his ministry in and around Galilee. But not all of them were fulfilled. And some of these prophecies point to a fulfillment that is yet to come when Jesus returns for his church. And this is really the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Reading and understanding Old Testament prophecy is likened to looking at a mountain range off in a distance. As you look at a mountain range from where you stand, miles away from it, it's very difficult to ascertain which mountains come first. And it looks like all of those mountains really are right next to one another from the perspective of where we are miles away. And what we don't see is that they're actually separated by miles. And there are vast valleys in between those mountaintops. But we just don't see that from our perspective. And the only way to change that depth perception problem is to travel up to those mountains. And when we get there, we see that the mountaintops are actually separated by many miles and vast valleys that lie in between them. And Old Testament prophecy is similar from the perspective of the prophet who wrote them and the perspective of the people who read the words of those prophets in their day, to them it appears as though many of these prophecies would all happen at the same time. But now, from our perspective, many centuries later, on this side of the first advent of Christ, we see that they don't all happen at the same time and that many of these prophecies of the Messiah, of the advent of Christ, are fulfilled not in his first advent, but in his second advent when he returns. And we'll see some of that even in this morning's passage. So let me set, us the, sta- set the stage for us for the prophecy that we'll read about in the 11th chapter of Isaiah this morning. Tyler helped to set the context for us last week, but in case you missed that or need a refresher, What was happening during this time? Well, King Ahaz was ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was a divided kingdom during this day. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was in that southern kingdom of Judah that King Ahaz was reigning during this time. And that was the place where, and the people, where Isaiah was focusing his prophetic ministry. Now we can read about King Ahaz and what was happening to Israel and Judah during this day in the book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles. The book of Isaiah that we're in this morning is not so much about laying out the historical narrative of what was happening in that day and to those people, but rather it's about giving us God's prophetic words to those people 
to encourage them to persevere in the faith as they continued in that time. So what was happening during that day? We can read about it in those other books, but, but what was happening was the development of and the build-up to one of the greatest ancient empires of that day, the Assyrian Empire. And as the Assyrian Empire was growing in size and strength and threatening all the surrounding nations, including the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel was afraid and they allied together with Syria and they launched an attack and invaded southern kingdom of Judah. They began to threaten their neighbors to the south. And as a result of that threat, King Ahaz, who's ruling in the southern kingdom, who, by the way, was not a good and godly king, he was um, infamous for being a, a bad and evil king. So instead of turning to Yahweh and leading the southern kingdom of Judah and God's people to, to trust in their Lord, instead, he turned to this growing kingdom of Assyria and made an alliance with them in order to ward off the attack of the coalition of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. And it worked. It worked for them. They, they subdued the northern kingdom and Syria, that coalition. But while it worked for them, it was both an unholy and an unwise alliance for the southern kingdom to make with Assyria. Because after the Assyrians helped Judah defeat the coalition of Israel and Syria, Assyria then turned on Judah. And that's where we got the prophecy last week from chapter 9 that, that, that God would send a child to help them. The hope for God's people of, of, of the southern kingdom of Judah was not in their military strength or their political maneuvering with other nations, but their hope lied in the birth of a coming child, one who would be called, as we read, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And this, of course, pointed to the coming Messiah who would save God's people from the curse of sin and death by ruling forever on the throne of King David, as was foretold. And this prophecy of the advent of Messiah in chapter 9 was meant to encourage God's people to remain faithful to God and to persevere in their faith despite what was happening in and around them, that God would one day bring a deliverer. Well, that prophecy continues. Chapter 9 is followed by chapter 10. And in chapter 10, God tells Isaiah to tell us in chapter 10 that he's going to defeat the Assyrians themselves. Chapter 10, in large measure, is a prophecy of the coming destruction and defeat of the great Assyrian empire. They're reminded, the Assyrians are, by this prophecy in chapter 10, that they were simply God's instrument. They were simply a tool in Yahweh's hands to bring judgment and punishment on Israel and Judah for the rebellion, their rebellion against their God. But now, the arrogance of Assyria would come to an end, and they would be destroyed. And that's what happens at the end of chapter 10. Assyria is defeated, and, and, and we're given this picture, this metaphor of, of Assyria as a great forest hewn down by God, a, a vast thicket of huge trees that are felled by the axe that God wields as he defeats the Assyrian empire. So the defeat of the Assyrians is complete. So now, as we come to chapter 11, we need some good news. What is the hope that God's going to give to his people in this setting? Because the defeat of the Assyrians, we know from historical reference only gives way to an even greater empire, the Babylonian Empire. And that leads to not just the defeat of God's people, but their deportation into a foreign, godless land, and many, many years, and many, many generations of exile away from the promised land. So the defeat of Assyria doesn't necessarily mean victory for God's people, it doesn't necessarily mean good news for God's people, it simply means that another nation is going to take their place. And that God's people are going to continue to suffer just by the hand of another nation. So what is the good news? What is the hope that God is going to give to his people in this day and in this place? 
As with the prophecy from chapter 9, this prophecy in chapter 11 gives hope to God's people as they wait. Wait in exile, waiting in suffering, waiting for their God to make all things right. And in the midst of this waiting, God leads Isaiah to write this. Isaiah 11, the first 10 verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on, upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse he shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray. Father God, we return thanks to you for the privilege of gathering as your people this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you corporately to bring our needs before you in prayer and to hear from you in your word. And in that, Father, we are so thankful for this book that we are able to hold in our hands and to have the confidence that you have foreseen its inspiration from your spirit. And you have preserved it throughout the ages such that we can know that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. We ask that you'd speak to us from it, Father. Father, remove me from any focus or attention. And may your son, Jesus Christ, take the full gambit of our attention this morning. May we hear from you, be encouraged by you, be challenged by you, Father. And we pray for those among us who don't know you by faith. They're here. We love them. They're investigating the claims of your son, They've never repented of their sins or professed faith in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope. Father, would you show them truth this morning? And would you, through the glory of your good news, woo them to yourself that they might repent and trust in your Son and become a worshiper of you for your glory? Father, for those of us who do know you, May the hope and the promise of the first advent and the reality that we know that this branch actually came inspire us to continue to persevere and remain faithful to you, relying on you for wisdom and hope as we await your return and bring us home. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the message of hope for God's people in Isaiah's day, who were in the setting which we've been describing this morning, the message of hope for them was that God would send a branch, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And this branch would be his son. And his son would rule and reign much differently than the guy that was on the throne currently, King Ahaz. This branch would reign and rule with justice and righteousness. And his reign would mean the restoration 
of God's kingdom, that he would make all things new. And this small, seemingly insignificant shoot from the stump of Jesse would become a magnificent lighthouse, shining forth the truth and light of the gospel, not only for Israel, but for God's people from all nations. That's what this prophecy was meant to convey to the people of Isaiah's day. Peace from war and hostility and strife. Restoration of God's Edenic kingdom rule was coming. And this peace and this kingdom was coming through a branch. Other prophets like Jeremiah and Zechariah throughout the Old Testament speak of God sending a branch. And these are all references to the promise of his son, the Messiah, the anointed one. So the branch here is the Messiah, and and he's the subject of Isaiah's prophecy here in the 11th chapter. So what I want us to do this morning in the remainder of our time is to, to look at four things that we can note about the branch from this passage that help to kind of give us a picture. Isaiah is a prophet that used all, uses all kinds of, of beautiful me, uh, metaphorical language to paint this picture for us. And he, he does this to paint a picture of the branch and who Jesus is. And so first we note the ancestry of the branch. We learn in verse 1 that the branch is going to come from the stump of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So you recall from the context we looked at, at the end of chapter 11, we had this metaphor of a forest, the Assyrian army, this vast forest that was hewn down by God. These these large trees like soldiers, dormant and lifeless on the ground of the forest floor. And then he says here, but a shoot shall come forth from one of the stumps, and in particular from the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Well, we know from biblical history that Jesse was the father of David, the greatest king of Israel. And so this shoot from the stump of Jesse is a shoot, a branch, that comes from the line of King David's father. So we might say, well, I guess it's King David. Well, it can't be King David, obviously, because King David can't come as a shoot because he's already come and and reigned and died he's no longer here among us and so this shoot from the stump of jesse is someone who comes from the line of david and all the way back to when david was sitting on the throne of israel god has been promising that one would come from his lineage who would reign on his throne forever Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David becomes king of Israel, God says about him in 2 Samuel, 12 verses 12, uh, 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13, he says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, literally your seed, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom He, speaking of the one from David, he shall build a house for my name, the Lord says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there was a promise of one coming from the seed of David. Now, that that mention in 2 Samuel 7 to David's seed, David's offspring, should also recall to our minds God's curse upon the serpent back in Genesis chapter 3. There, God says to the serpent, after the fall of man, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, literally, and your seed and her seed. He, the one who comes from her seed, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was a promise that God would send one from the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent and defeat the curse of sin and death forever. And this promise was later given specifically to King David, that this one who comes from the seed of the woman would come through his line, through his family. 
And this promise is repeated by God all throughout the Old Testament by his prophets. In fact, just last week, we read from Isaiah chapter 9 that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so this is what Isaiah now refers to when he says, I'm sending a branch from the stump of Jesse. There shall come forth a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. This was a reminder to them that the promise of Genesis 3.15 repeated in 2 Samuel 7 and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and through the prophets that God was going to send one from the seed of the woman that would come from the line of King David who would defeat the enemies of God's people, namely sin and death. This was a reminder to the people of Isaiah's day that that promise was still intact, that that prophecy was yet to be fulfilled. It was still to come. And I'm sure, I'm sure that the saints of Isaiah's day who were experiencing this turmoil and the strife that we've been describing were at times tempted to doubt that this promise would ever come true. Would God really send one who would sit on David's throne forever? As they looked around in their circumstances and what was happening to them and, and to the people who came before them and, and to what looked like the future for Judah and Israel, it surely didn't seem like this was going to happen ever. Probably seemed to them like God had either forgotten his promise or worse, he had forgotten his people. King David was dead and gone. His greatness as a king was but a mere memory to them, a, a, a byline on, on the history books. And perhaps they wondered, is that all it's going to be? Just a memory of God's man on the throne. King Ahaz, though he was a descendant of David, certainly he was not a king like David. And they had to wonder, would there ever be a king like David? Much less one that would reign forever? And this prophecy in chapter 11 is given at this moment in time in the midst of their wondering, in the midst of their waiting, in the midst of their doubting to remind them unequivocally that God keeps his promises and he was going to send a deliverer. And so for us today, as God's people today, at Christmas, we look back and we celebrate that he did indeed send the branch. The son of David came, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. God put on flesh and lived among us. God kept his promise to send a branch. And that certainly ought to be a huge part of our Christmas celebration and rejoicing today. But today we also look forward to his return and sometimes it might seem like he's never going to return. After all, it's been so long since he first came at Bethlehem. And as we see the world around us begin to drift farther and farther and farther from the Lord, it's easy for us to begin to doubt the promise of his second advent. But when we behold the baby in a manger, we should be encouraged because we're reminded that that baby in a manger means for us that God keeps his promises. And just as he kept his promise to send his son the first time, so he will keep his promise to send him a second time when he will come not as a baby in a manger, but as a conquering king. That leads us to the second thing that we ought to note 
about the branch from this passage. Not only do we note its ancestry, but we also note its rule. In verse 2, we see that this branch would not just be one that comes from the line of David. That wouldn't be enough. As we mentioned, King Ahaz himself was from the line of David. That wasn't enough. And so verse 2 tells us that this branch would also have the Spirit of the Lord resting on him. This is, of course, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, that, that he would rest on the branch. That word rest means to, to remain on, to settle on. And of course, we fast forward and we recall that after Jesus was baptized, what did John see? He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And he says, and it remained on him. It remained on Jesus. It settled on him. And so this was prophecy that Jesus would be empowered by and led by the Spirit of God such as no one else ever had been before. And what follows there in verse 2 are, are three couplets that describe what this means for the branch. That he would have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He would have the spirit of counsel and might. And he would have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And each of these couplets that describe the, the, the spirit resting on the branch and what that spirit was like. Each of those couplets seems to match up with the effect of the spirit resting on the branch in verses three through five so let's look at each one of those and see how they match up first the spirit of wisdom and understanding seems to match up with the end of verse three and the beginning of verse four he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth the branch would judge with righteousness and equity and fairness. Why? Because he has a spirit of wisdom and understanding. You see, man's judgment is based on empirical evidence. Man's judgment, your judgment and mine, is based on what he talks about there in verse 3. What our eyes see and what our ears hear. But God's judgment is much more profound than that. And it goes much deeper than that. Because our eyes can deceive us, right? Our ears can deceive us. And so God's judgment is based on something much more profound and much more trustworthy. It is based on his wisdom and understanding and righteousness. His judgment would be perfect, this branch's judgment would. Always right, always good, always fair, always just. And this was good news for the poor and the meek of the earth as he describes them there in verse 4. Because the branch would have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Secondly, he talks about the spirit of counsel and might. And that seems to match up with the second half of verse 4. Where he says, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So not only would this branch from the stump of Jesse bring good judgment for the helpless, the poor, and the meek, but it would also bring bad judgment, a judgment of punishment for the wicked. To the helpless, he would be a savior. To the wicked, to those who reject him, he would be a judge. And then the third aspect of the spirit is that he would have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that seems to match up with verse 5 where he says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So both the good judgment for salvation, for the helpless, and the bad judgment for punishment for the wicked are both judgments that are according to righteousness. Why? Because he will have a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The, the branch would not rule based on the fear of man, but on the fear of the Lord. And as a result, his rule would be righteous and his rule would be just. By the way, there's a, there's a really neat word play in between verses 2 and 3 here that really adds to the picture that Isaiah is giving us of this branch. In verse 2, we see the Spirit mentioned four times. And the Hebrew word for Spirit there 
is the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach. It's fun to say because you kind of clear your throat a little bit. <laughs> ruach. In, in verse 3, in the next verse, one of the very first words there is a homonym and is, sounds exactly like the word for spirit in verse 2. And they're both pronounced the same, ruach. In verse 2, the word means breath or spirit. And in verse 3, where it sounds exactly the same, but it's a different word, it means smell or aroma. It's, it's often used in accordance with a pleasing aroma, as in an offering that is made and a pleasing aroma is lifted up. And so the picture is that of the branch who, because he has the Spirit of God resting on him, his delight, the word delight there is the same word, ruach, his delight or the pleasing aroma of his offering, the smell of his sacrifice is the fear of the Lord. And for this reason, he's going to rule differently than anybody who had ever ruled for that southern kingdom. With wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So all of this is given as a prophetic promise to a people who had only known the rule of evil King Ahaz. And the only rule that they had known in addition to King Ahaz is that of the foreign nations and their evil kings who had defeated them and conquered them and ruled over them. They had never known the kind of reign and rule that was being described by Isaiah here in this passage. And they never would in their lifetime. This prophecy was meant to encourage them to remain faithful to God, to persevere in their faith. Because one day God would send a ruler, this branch, who would rule righteously with wisdom and understanding and according to the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man. Now some of the aspects of the reign of this branch were fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus but some of them weren't fulfilled until his, won't be fulfilled until his return. For example, the spirit of counsel and might, this had to do with the role of the branch in punishing sin and judging wickedness. And of course, we know that we do not see this in the first advent of Christ, but we will see it in his return. When he returns, John would later see in his revelation this same Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In Revelation 19, when he comes back, John writes this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. So the prophecy of this branch that has the spirit of counsel and might, who is, as he says there, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, killing the wicked. This is a prophecy that is not yet fulfilled. God's mercy is still in play. But that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Likewise, there in verse 5, that part about his loins being girded up by righteousness and by faithfulness gives us the connotation of a warrior who's readying himself for a battle. He's girding up his loins about his waist, ready for battle, ready for the punishing action of God's coming judgment. So as we celebrate Christmas, we, we look back and we rejoice that God kept his promise. God sent his son to do battle against sin and death. And that he won that battle. And he defeated sin and death forever for those who would trust in him for that salvation. When he died on the cross and rose again. This is a massive victory for God's kingdom rule. And it was foretold by the prophets many, many years ago. And so Absolutely, that should be an integral, an overarching part of our celebration and rejoicing 
during the Christmas season. But as we, in reality, continue to battle against sin in our own lives and our own hearts each and every day, battling against indwelling sin, we can always, we can also look forward at Christmas to the return of this branch who will come again not as a babe in a manger, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And he will at his second advent, finally and forever, defeat the enemy of our souls, that great ancient serpent, Satan, and remove us who know him by faith from the very presence of sin and the very curse of death. Those in this room who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone have this as a very real and sure hope at Christmas that we look forward to. And so we see this branch's ancestry. We see its rule. Thirdly, we see its kingdom. Verses 6 through 9 give us a very uh, beautiful picture of a restored kingdom, creation restored to its almost Edenic state here. The description of creation in these verses really doesn't bear much resemblance to what we know about creation today, right? It sounds like creation before sin entered the world, before the fall. And so this is a prophecy that that one day when this branch returns, he will set up his kingdom rule and his kingdom is going to look a whole lot like it did in the garden. And although it doesn't sound a lot like the created order that we know around us today in our time, because, why? Because creation itself today is hopelessly stained with man's sin. It's under the curse of the fall as we are. And so it's, this, this doesn't look like creation today. But it looks beautiful. It looks like creation restored to what God originally intended. Where it knows true peace and shalom. When this branch's rule and reign is ultimately fulfilled. The description of this branch's kingdom includes at least three differences or three changes from the created world that we know around us today first of all we see here a cessation of hostilities a reconciliation of sworn enemies verse 6 says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together so in messiah's kingdom there will be no predator and there will be no prey Hostilities will cease and enemies will be reconciled. And and when it says there at the end of verse 6 that a little child shall lead them, it's not just talking about the calf that the child's going to lead, but also the wolf and the leopard and the lion. Messiah's kingdom reign will be a restored kingdom, a kingdom that is a creation where it's no longer stained by our sin where the effects of the fall will be no more. And even mankind's rightful authority and commandment in Genesis 1 to subdue creation and to have dominion over creation is also pictured here by this little child who leads not just the calf, but the wolf and the leopard and the lion by the hand. Not only do we see a cessation of hostilities here in this picture of creation and and a reconciliation of enemies, but we see, secondly, a complete change in the nature of these beasts. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, which means they eat together. The, The cow and the bear don't typically dine together, and they don't typically eat the same thing, but they will in the branches kingdom. Their very nature will be changed in his kingdom. And instead of the ox eating straw and the lion eating the ox, which is what we know, he says, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. How different creation will be when the branch sets up his kingdom. 
And then thirdly, we see what I take to be a picture of the removal of the curse of sin. Look at verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. On one level, this again demonstrates how very different the creation will be as it's restored fully to this Edenic state. It'll be a kingdom of peace, kingdom of shalom. And why? Because of verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an incredible depiction of God's restored kingdom when Jesus comes back and sets it up. There is no part of the sea that is not covered by water. And there will be no part of the earth that is not full of the knowledge of the Lord. His kingdom rule will be without challenge. But on another level, as I read verse 8, I can't help but think again about that reference to God's curse on the serpent from Genesis 3. He says to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, I will put enmity. That is, we're going to be mortal enemies. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this picture here in Isaiah 11 verse 8 of a nursing child playing over the hole of a cobra is a picture of the curse of sin being removed forever, broken forever. That's what this branch will do. He will reverse the curse and remove the curse of sin and death. The people of the southern kingdom of Judah, all they had known was war and hostility and strife. They had lived in a time in which the wolf actually ate the lamb. And they were most often the lamb. And what is promised to them here with the, with the promise of this branch that's going to come from the stump of Jesse is a world of such a peace of which they had never known in their lifetime. How that promise of that peace, that shalom, must have sustained them during dark, dark nights of exile in times of great suffering and anguish, as we know they were sure to experience for centuries. And as we consider the yet unfulfilled aspects of this promise, because we too live in a time when the wolf eats the lamb. Sometimes we're the wolf, but oftentimes we're the lamb. But what is described here is, has not yet been fully realized for us as well. And so we live in a time and place in which we know much more about war than peace. We know much more about hostility than harmony. Where the predator usually survives by killing and consuming the prey. But the promise of this prophecy still remains. And for those who know this branch... True and lasting peace is what awaits you when the branch returns and sets up his kingdom. As the heavenly host sang to the shepherds who were keeping watch over the flocks outside of Bethlehem on the night in which Jesus was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those. So this passage teaches us about the branch's ancestry, its rule, its kingdom, and then finally it teaches us about its reach. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. See, the branch will be delivered not just for Israel, not just for Judah, but for all of God's people from every nation, from all tribes, all those who come to the branch through faith. Of him, he says, the, shall the nations inquire. To me, this points to the reach of this branch 
and the reach of this branch reaches to the nations. A people from every tribe, language, race, and nation. And the reference there in verse 10 to to the root of Jesse forms an inclusio with verse 1 where it was the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And so this branch that, that starts out as this shoot, this small, little, insignificant, sprouting bud from the stump of Jesse ends up being a tree that stands as a signal for all peoples. I think this points to the to the insignificance of the branch at its outset compared with where it ends up, standing as a signal for all peoples, for the nations. And doesn't that remind us about the insignificance, the smallness of Jesus' first advent compared to his return? Jesus was born to a carpenter, not a king. He was born in poverty, not into wealth. He was born into the insignificance of Bethlehem. He was raised in the insignificance of Nazareth. He was put to death on a Roman, wooden Roman cross. And he was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. But that little shoot sprouting from the stump of Jesse would become a tree for the nations, a signal for all peoples. The message of hope for God's people in Isaiah's day that were experiencing this kind of turmoil and anguish that we can only read about was that God would send a branch and this branch would be a son and his son would be a different ruler than Ahaz, much different. He would reign and rule with righteousness and justice. He would reign according to the fear of the Lord with wisdom and understanding. And his reign would mean the restoration of God's kingdom, the the making of all things new. And the small, seemingly insignificant little branch would become a magnificent lighthouse, shining forth the light of the gospel, not just for the Israelites, but for God's people of all nations. The promise of this coming branch would sustain this people for generations. Many generations. Through the Assyrian assault, through the Babylonian conquest, through the deportation to a foreign land, through many, many, many years in exile, and through the 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew, in which God's people heard no word from God, where no prophet spoke from Him. And through all of these times, God's people would come back to this promise of a branch, a son, a king, a ruler, a child, who would save God's people from their sin. How firmly the remnant of God's people must have clung to these promises in the darkest nights of their exile and anguish. How this promise of peace and restoration must have given them such great hope to persevere. Today, as God's people, we look back at Christmas. We look back and see the fulfillment of God's promise of a branch. He did it. He sent him. We read about the birth of His Son, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. God in flesh, dwelling among us, living the perfect life that we never could, dying in our place on a cross, rising from the dead three days later. God kept His promise. He sent the branch. And this we celebrate. And and this is the source of our joy and rejoicing at Christmas. We get to look back and celebrate the reality of that which these saints only hoped for. And think about it. If if their hope in the promise of a coming branch encouraged them to remain faithful to their God, how much more ought the reality that a branch actually did come and live and die for us and rise again, how much more ought that good news, the reality of that good news, 
encourage us to remain faithful and persevere in our faith. But as the saints of Isaiah's day waited in eager but hopeful patience for the advent of this branch, so church, we too wait today in eager and yet hopeful patience for the second advent of this branch. Let's pray. Father, we, we wish to return thanks to you for preserving this prophecy, this story, to know that not only did Jesus come, but it was foretold hundreds of years before. And as we place ourselves in the, in the mindset of those who first heard that promise, in the midst of their anguish, in the midst of their waiting, in the midst of their wondering, and, and being tempted to doubt God's promises, Father, we're reminded of how hopeful this promise must have been. And as we look at that baby in a manger, as we celebrate at Christmas, you putting on flesh and becoming one of us. We worship you and thank you for what that meant, but we also rejoice that that means that you keep your promises. And you've made a further promise to not leave us in this world forever but that you would come back and you would set up your kingdom, a kingdom that will look a whole lot different than the, than the reign and the rule of man today. Father, may the, the promise of the restoration of all things keep us anchored in our soul to the truth of the gospel and the hope of a risen king. Father, we pray for those among us in the hearing of my voice to which this story is just fanciful and almost unbelievable. We pray, Father, that you would give that person the faith to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant unto them the repentance leading to salvation, to turn from their sin and self-rule, that sin and self-rule that we all clung to as our hope. Father, may you lead that person to renounce their sin, to renounce their own self-rule, and trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope. May this Christmas be the day of their salvation. Welcome a new worshiper into your family. We pray for that person. Father, may our Christmas celebrations in our homes and families reflect the hope that we have, not just in a babe in a manger, but in what he means for us. For we behold that manger against the backdrop of the cross. We behold that branch against the tree to which he was nailed. And we cling to that hope that this branch will return and make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.